being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong cool <laughs> all right let's see here all right today we are joined by esalen professor emeritus at pastiche psyop on twitter one of the many very talented people that I've met through Twitter. And uh, let's see here. I would say probably resident expert on the whole area that we're going to talk about today, both the, uh, the, both the region and the individuals and the psychology department that we'll be discussing. So how are you doing today? Pastiche Sayot? <laughs> um, I'm good. I'm excited to be talking about the entire region of Santa Cruz County and Monterey because I think that they're pretty underrated when people discuss this kind of thing. Like Kate Ashbury and San Francisco get a lot of attention. So mm -hmm. I think it's time to, you know, expand our horizons a little bit. I'm excited to talk about it. That's right. Oh, man. There's <laughs> such weirdness. <laughs> so, by way of introduction, I would say, like, obviously, you know, I've read about a lot of this stuff, you know, program to chill, or I mean, excuse me, program to kill, of course, talks quite a bit about these things. And I did, uh, I think what, like one and a half to two episodes on sort of like Ed Kemper, Santa Cruz, sort of that region. And then I saw you posting on Twitter, just like, <laughs> just about like every week, it would just be like, all that stuff, but like more so. It would just be like wild, wild stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Actually, this entire, um, the reason that I got kind of like more interested in studying the, the history of both the University of California, Santa Cruz, and like the area of Santa Cruz itself was one of your threads, um, which interestingly, like it wasn't on Ed Kemper or uh, any of the serial killer stuff. Uh, it was actually on uh, Daniel Sheehan in the Christic Institute um, <laughs> in your thread about uh, gifted children and Jeffrey Epstein. And so I was like, could all this stuff really be true about my <laughs> humble beachside hamlet? Uh, and then, you know, the more you look into it, the more it's like they were pretty, pretty blatant about this stuff. And it, and it seems as though uh, it hasn't been looked into that deeply in that many places. Uh, like Dave McGowan, for instance, conflates the area with San Francisco, which mm -hmm. I think is a pretty reasonable thing to do, but there's more when you look a little deeper, I think. Yeah. And like, when you look at something like Vacaville, I feel like a lot of what we're going to talk about today is sort of like, I guess you'd say maybe like the academic base for like what they were doing at that prison, you know, and mm -hmm. some of the stuff in San Francisco, like there's connections, I would say, but yeah. Oh, definitely. And, and also with um, Palo Alto, which is mm. midway between Santa Cruz and San Francisco, a lot of the um, connections that end up springing up uh, in like the earlier counterculture that kind of preceded and undergirded a lot of the Silicon Valley developments that would take place later. Um, yeah. So let's see here. I think it would be instructive perhaps to look at some of the stuff that uh, you found on the... Uh, <clears throat> Oh, shoot. What's the name of the college here? The University of California, Santa Cruz, and specifically the psychology department. Mm -hmm. Yeah. University of California, Santa Cruz. It's kind of uh, 
it's kind of interesting because I feel as though when, when people talk about it and when they talk about Santa Cruz more generally, they always reference like the, the 1960s hippie counterculture um, mm-hmm. as though it not only like sprung up kind of organically in the area, but like UCSC also can't be divorced from it. Um, mm. And when you kind of look at like the interests that founded UCSC and especially the psychology department, uh, a lot of claims about like the the relatively inorganic nature of counterculture start to make a lot a lot more sense um, because the university was founded. Uh, the first classes were in October of 1965, and the planning had been happening since like 1958. Mm. Uh, and the minute that the university opened, two weeks later, uh, the first acid test would be held by Ken Kesey and the Mary Pranksters uh, about two miles away from the campus. So you know, one wonders if it was all coincidence um yeah i mean that is definitely like most aspects of the counterculture like a lot of what i've spent a lot of time doing (laughs) is questioning how organic any of it was right and yeah i mean the first acid tests i mean that's that's wild i mean only really the harvard stuff predated it in the u.s as as far as we know right Uh uh-huh and what's interesting is actually that one of the first experimenters at that Harvard, uh, LS, or psilocybin experiment at Harvard, ended up becoming a part of the, the psychology department at uh, UCSE. Yeah, who was that, by the way? Uh, Dr. Frank X. Barron. Uh, wait, let me, let me go back a little. Mm-hmm. Um, so when UCSE opened, um, the idea was to create a university that was sort of fundamentally different from the other UCs, like um, Berkeley, for instance, which sort of had this hundred year tradition of being a more traditionally, I think, aristocratic and sort of like academically upstanding university. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the first ex- expansion of the UC system was probably like 1960 with like UCLA. And UCLA was also a little bit more straightforward or traditional uh, in terms mm-hmm. of how it was run and kind of the vision with UCSC. Um, that actually stemmed from a lot of founding members of the psychology department, uh, like G. William Domhoff, um, who we'll definitely get into in a second, um, was uh, it was a university that was kind of deliberately uh, anti-UC in many ways. Uh, it ran from like eight residential colleges and the faculty almost universally voted to uh, replace grades with narrative evaluations. Um, hmm. And one of those faculty uh, that ended up founding the psychology department at UCSC, which was kind of a nascent study uh, for undergrad in many ways, um, especially social psychology, which eventually became a focus at um, was Dr. Frank X. Barron. And he didn't necessarily have a position of like administration in the psychology department or anything, but he was one of the most eminent professors that had come to UCSC after it opened in 1965. Um, I believe he came in 1967 after teaching at Berkeley for several decades and when he was at Berkeley he worked with the Institute for Personality Research and Assessment which was a CIA front essentially Uh, and he worked under the tutelage of uh, Dr. William uh, Donald McKinnon excuse me Uh, he worked under the tutelage of Donald McKinnon who was actually an alumnus of the OSS Um, (laughs) And so not only was he tied up with this sort of uh, just extremely blatant and almost hilariously transparent uh, front for the CIA and, you know, like the descendants of the OSS, uh, IPAR at UC Berkeley. Uh, He also at Harvard 
worked with Dr. Timothy Leary on one of the first academic experiments using psychedelics, which I think was in the 50s. Um, and then, mm -hmm. you know, by the time it's 1968, coincidentally, he decides to take up a position at this nascent university, uh, this nascent expansion of the UC. Uh, and then coincidentally, right after he comes, all this counterculture involving psilocybin and other, uh, you know, psychedelic adventures springs up around him. Um, yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you, because I was looking through a lot of the research uh, that you did, and I saw that Dr. Barron was working with uh, Aldous Huxley to an extent, as well as mm -hmm. you mentioned Larry Alpert. So mm -hmm. what, what, like, what was his connection with Huxley? I think his connection with Huxley was primarily academic. I actually don't know if they happened to be like personal friends. Um, I know that he many times described Timothy Leary as someone as, uh, who he would consider a friend. And I think uh, because he really ran in, in those circles, you know, involving like Ram Dass, Richard Alpert uh, and Leary and Huxley, I assume his connection with Huxley was probably more than more than professional, especially because uh, there were a lot of other figures that became academically important at UCSD that were also kind of friends with this weirdly British aristocratic group of people, <laughs> um, like Dr. Gregory Bateson, who is the whole other thing that we'll probably talk about in a minute. Um, yeah, no, okay. So I'm, I'm trying not to ask you if <laughs> what you uh, think of the whole like LaRouche <laughs> idea <laughs> that like basically the British like manufactured the psychedelic movement. <laughs> um, well, in Dope Inc, honestly, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep it real that I haven't read the entire thing. Uh, mm. I actually, I have this habit of like, picking out literature that people smarter than me have read and typing like Santa Cruz, like one character at a time into like the, the search bar. Um, but Dope Inc specifically cites uh, Dr. Gregory Bateson, who went up to work at UCSC, mm -hmm. uh, Aldous Huxley, uh, and Ken Kesey, who, as we talked about, conducted the first uh, acid test in Santa Cruz uh, two weeks after UCSC opened. Uh, and describes that as kind of like this, you know, ploy by the British aristocracy <laughs> to introduce psychedelics to the young people of America. Um, so to me, like the introduction of Dr. Frank X. Barron, who was connected to this institute, uh, SLM, that did hot tub diplomacy for Yeltsin and was connected to the very first psilocybin study at Harvard that was, you know, drenched in all these extremely weird uh, connections to larger forces. Um, I feel like the, the identification of Dr. Barron in this entire like web of <laughs> British aristocratic uh, figures kind of does lend some credence to the hypothesis, even if we don't entirely buy it and go full, you know, LaRouche thought on it. Um, but I think that it's definitely a very strange uh, additional layer that uh, involves Santa Cruz in a very particular way. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't necessarily by the uh, British plot to weaken America aspect, but like, I think that like some of the connections drawn up for sure. Yeah. Now, Dr. Barron, I think you said he also interacted with Allen Ginsberg. Mm -hmm. He uh, interacted with Allen Ginsberg. I'm not sure about Neil Cassidy, but um, both Allen Ginsberg and Neil Cassidy were connected to the new UC, um, not just by Dr. Barron, but by mm -hmm. a lot of other factors, uh, including independent student groups um, and a lot of 
uh, more established non-university uh, Santa Cruz counterculture figures, but um, I'm not quite sure about whether or not Dr. Barron was an instrument in allowing this to happen, but mm. uh, Allen Ginsberg spoke at UCSC, you know, giving poetry readings and other, I don't know, I guess hippie talks, whatever would be culturally interesting to an 18 year old moving from Cincinnati in 1965. Um, and he was connected to the university, uh, I think just in a variety of different ways, including Dr. Barron, because they were personal friends. Yeah. Um, and he was also friends with uh, the man who founded the Esalen Institute in Monterey, which is uh, on the central coast. It's probably 20 miles from Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz is in the Monterey Bay. Uh, and Dr. Byrne was also friends with uh, Michael Murphy, who founded Esalen. Oh, man. And then, so also I saw Robert Anton uh, Wilson was in the mix as well, right? Oh, yes. Robert Anton Wilson um, is not just connected to the UCSC psychology department uh, through Dr. Barron and a lot of these other weird uh, counterculture figures that coincidentally sprang up uh, in the UCSC psychology department. Uh, he was also very personally invested in Santa Cruz, um, but this wasn't during the mm -hmm. era um, of the opening of the university, which was probably 1965. Uh, years later, Robert Anton Wilson would come back to Santa Cruz um, and he moved there, I think, in 1989 and he died there. Yeah, I think I saw something you posted about like his ashes were like, were, uh, what was it? Something with the boardwalk or? Yeah, um, the, the oldest company uh, and to this day, I believe the largest private employer in Santa Cruz, um, now the largest public employer is UCSC. Um, but the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk is like this very like kind of fun, kind of, I guess, quaint uh, beachside amusement park. And uh, Robert Anton Wilson specifically requested to have his ashes scattered there. Uh, and before he died, his wife, there's this very like, I don't want to say like creepy, but it's it's <laughs> fucking creepy. Oh my gosh. Can I curse? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So there's this fucking creepy video of Robert Anton Wilson's wife parading his ashes in a box around on her head uh, <laughs> at the Charles Loof carousel, which is the boardwalk's oldest ride. Um, and all of his followers are just cheering like, yes, this is normal and appropriate. <laughs> um, but he definitely had like a, I don't know if we'll talk about it later, but Robert Anton Wilson, besides being connected to this group of people, you know, the Esalen founder, Michael Murphy, Dr. Frank X. Barron, uh, Allen Ginsberg, he was not only close personal friends with them, but the city of Santa Cruz itself, I think, became very important to him to the point where he was like, I need to be scattered in this old money institution. Like, for long. Please, please just send me into the ocean, um, which... This is also like, this might be a coincidence, but, but he moved there a year after Thomas Pynchon moved to Aptos. So, you know, <laughs> it's getting a little crypto cuttlefish around here. Um, <laughs> the, that's the tone and vibe that we're all always trying to recreate is <laughs> the crypto cuttlefish vibe. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying he was jealous directly, but I'm just, you know, just throwing it out there. Um, yeah, but Dr. Frank X. Barron, I think when you think about him and his connections to Timothy Leary and to Allen Ginsberg and to these, you know, more classic and well-known figures of, of counterculture that ended up becoming a staple of UCSC and of Santa Cruz itself during this time, like, to me, even if he were present on the faculty after leaving, you know, a decades-long and I think tenured position at a much more well-respected and well-funded university, like, that would be enough to be like, okay, come on, something a little weird was happening here. Um, but I would say that his colleagues, if possible, were a little more creepy um, in many ways than even the, the preeminent Dr. Byrne. 
Um, yeah. Well, can I ask a stupid question? <clears throat> no. <laughs> so is, okay, you know, the X-Men, is Professor X, like, in any way, like, inspired by Dr. Frank X. Barron? I, <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, my God. Um, well, I'm just Googling I, I, it right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, to me, to my knowledge, the X was kind of a self-aggrandizing, like, style thing. Um, but given the fact that before he came to University of California, Santa Cruz, he was at Berkeley's, uh, Institute for Personality Assessment and Research, which again, was like a human ecology fund, you know, level of concealment, of CIA front. Um, the idea of selecting, you know, a very special group of people with, you know, personal anomalies that make them useful in combat is a little goofy. I'd say it's a little silly. Interesting. Quirky. Nothing came up on Google. I don't know if this is a <laughs> stupid dead end or not, but <laughs> the thought occurred to me with the X because it's like very stylized for sure. Wait, okay, wait, let's pause for a second. I don't even know if the middle name was Xavier. Um, I legitimately don't even know that much about the X-Men. I'm... I don't know about X-Men either. <laughs> what the F? Oh, bet... he was also a Guggenheim fellow. What the fuck? This guy was crazy. I bet that if he was in any way like inspiring that character, I bet someone would have like probably <laughs> figured it out by now. Yeah. Okay. I hope so. Oh um, yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Wait. What the hell is the name? What's the name of the guy from the X Men? The is it Charles like Xavier? The, yeah. Oh, wait. But his his is it, oh wait never mind. Let me see. I, um. Yeah. Charles Francis Xavier, professor. Oh my. I'm sorry. His Dr. Frank X. Barron's child was named Francis Charles Xavier. I think his first name was probably Francis. That's it. I'm calling it right now. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. All we have to do is figure out like where Stanley was living (laughs) and see if it's during this time. (laughs) I bet he lived in Monterey County. I would I wouldn't put that past him. Oh jeez. Um, oh my gosh yeah no his first name was actually he was a second generation francis his dad was also francis and so his child was was francis charles i guess stanley lived in california um but i don't who knows (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny oh my god i don't know how you're gonna edit that to make it usable on the podcast but i can stop (laughs) laughing like a freak but that is so funny what the hell? I mean, yeah. Uh, sorry, one second. When you think about what the Institute for Personality Assessment and Research, you know, kind of was, it sort of was like a intended to be an, an X-Men identification thing. And given all the uh, supposed, you know, like humanitarian intervention for a lot of uh, juvenile delinquents in Santa Cruz County mm-hmm. that sprung up during this period, uh, you know, maybe the idea of identifying special children wasn't so wasn't so out there per se i don't know let's definitely return to that theme yeah um Um, so yeah who were some of the other freaks and weirdos in the uh ucsc psychology department in the early days um there were a lot so when the university was founded again in in 65 um it was just like the pretty straightforward psychology department but over time they also developed like an arm called the social psychology department, which started in, in the late 60s. Um, and there were a lot of them that sprang up in there. Um, one of the most 
significant people to me, uh, Dr. Theodore Starvin. Um, mm. Also showed up in the very early days when it was still the Mr. psychology department. <laughs> Mr. Role Theory himself. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Mr. Uh, leave Sirhan Sirhan alone. Um, <laughs> Mr. Too Damn Role Theory. <laughs> um, yeah, he was. I think he was. Was he actually known by that that pseudonym? Is that what really what people called him? When I looked him up, that's what came up was Mr. Role Theory, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious. Um, yeah, so, so he was this. Uh, psychologist who had initially, before I think he went into academia, uh, made his name as a clinical practitioner of psychology in Los Angeles uh, in the 40s. And then again, uh, during the 1950s, he was affiliated with the University of California at Berkeley um, until he transferred to UCSC uh, when the university opened. Um, he had a lot of very interesting points throughout his career. Um, like Dr. Frank Experin, he was a, he was a Guggenheim fellow. Um, he wrote his thesis, or not his thesis, but he wrote like a series of papers on the identification of danger. Uh, and he gave a series of lectures in the 1950s on the identification of dangerous and criminal proclivities uh, in juveniles. Um, oh, really? He, yeah. <laughs> um, and it wasn't just like he gave one talk at a conference uh, in 19, from 1952 to, uh, I believe, 1954. Um, he was involved in a series of public speaking engagements and conferences about um, the like finding potentialities for criminality uh, in teenagers. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so uh, at his appointment to UCSC, uh, he had become famous for the idea of role theory, which is a theory of hypnosis that sort of posits that when people are being hypnotized, they're not necessarily being compelled to do anything uh, that they don't want to do. Um, it's about understanding hypnosis as sort of the adoption of a social role that is prescribed by the person doing the hypnotizing. Mm. Um, and again, he had used this in, in clinical practice and then it became widespread across the field of psychology. So he was not just on the, on the cutting edge of a lot of identification of juvenile criminality, but also on the enactment of psychology, particularly, or on the enactment of um, hypnosis, particularly hypnosis utilized, uh, like, <laughs> what the hell am I trying to say? Um, to not, oh my gosh, hypnosis utilized without making people do things that were purely against their will, um, which I think can definitely be understood as kind of moving toward a coercive use of hypnosis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the idea that he was both deeply interested in criminal juveniles and, you know, studying them, and he was very interested in hypnotic susceptibility, mm -hmm. like, that raises a lot of questions for me. <laughs> I think also, given like what, that we're going to get into the serial killer epidemic that sprung up in Santa Cruz, um, I linked this in my thread, but he wrote a paper called The Dangerous Individual, an Outcome of Social Identi Identity Transformations. Um, and so he wrote a few papers about understanding danger as socially mediated and the dangerous individual is something that's kind of socially uh, and culturally understood and how that might apply to the treatment of dangerous individuals. Um, so, so he was also studying <laughs> what role <laughs> particularly dangerous people had in society before yep. the serial killer wave, basically. Yeah, and including, you know, uh, juveniles that had I'm, had I'm, I'm taking notes on all of this. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, yeah, so uh, anyway, after his uh, tenure at UCSD, I think he left sometime in the 80s. Uh, he actually went to Monterey, which, as we said, is close by and it's the location of Esalen. Uh, it's also one of a very uh, operative naval base in California, uh, and it holds the Defense Language Institute, the post-naval Graduate Institute, which like, honestly, just tip for you all, Google Google their notable alumni list and then <laughs> read Walking the Moon Doggy and feel astonishment in your heart. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but he ended up working for, I don't know how you say this, it's uh, it's Parisurk, which uh, he ended up becoming a military intelligence psychologist oh, yeah, after. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's not just like he was a psychologist for the military, he was a psychologist at the, you know, academic center for the collection of military intelligence psychology. Um, and while he was doing this, he somehow found the time to operate as one of the scientific advisors for the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. Uh, and he received the uh, Henry Murray Award from the American Psychological Association after his tenure as their president. And uh, now that he has passed on, I think in like 2002, uh, the APA uh, honoring their former president and Henry Murray Fellow um, named an award after Dr. Sarbin. Now, tell me, what was the Friedlander Sarbin scale? Oh, did I forget? <laughs> no, it's no it's, it's, a, it's one of the most famous, if not excessive, susceptibility skills, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I don't like. I'm. I'm Wait, yeah. I'll tell you. Once we get to David Marlowe, I'll tell you why I got that fucked up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, so the, the Friedlander Sarbin susceptibility scale is mm -hmm. one of the first and most important scales developed for the identification of hypnotically susceptible individuals. Um, and, you know, I think as many listeners of this podcast might know, hypnotic susceptibility is probably like one in 20 people are going to be incredibly susceptible to hypnosis to the point mm -hmm. where they can kind of be compelled to take on these roles that they would never normally uh feel that were prescribed to them. Uh, and so his susceptibility scale that he developed with Dr. Friedlander was the precursor to, I think what is now either the standard or the former standard for the identification of a hypnotically susceptible individual, uh, which was the Stanford scale. So basically when he came to UCSC, this had already been developed. So when he was <clears> hired to the UCSC faculty, they definitely had some indication that he was adept at not only uh, inducing hypnosis, but identifying those individuals who may be susceptible to uh, hypnosis. Yeah, when you were posting about Sarbin, I was just like, holy shit, this guy's like a freaking like plutonium rod for like susness, just taking, just glowing in the dark. <laughs> he sounds like someone that I made up in like a paranoid dream I was having. <laughs> yeah, no, he legitimately seems too spooky to be real. Um, wait, can we actually, sorry, I know that we've been talking for a while, just like about two members of this department. I don't know why there's so fucking many of them, but like to, to briefly just take a break. Um, mm -hmm. I was going to say something. Um, oh my God. What the hell? Oh yeah. I don't know if this is relevant to mention, but actually the, uh, psychological study that precluded the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell was authored by Theodore Starvin. And it's now what he's most known for. Um, yeah, in 1989. yeah, which is like, I mean, you know, like. My parent, my lesbian parents probably can hear me through the fucking walls, but like, you know, like that's a little like to me, I, I don't really know. Like, you know, we're, we're gay activists as someone who kind of, I think, you know, prides themselves on knowing a little bit about queer history. Like, mm -hmm. we're gay activists really like, yes, let us die. Like, 
oh my god <laughs> you know what i mean yeah well it's one of those things where like historically the justification well there was you know a lot of made up shit too but like one of the more grounded in reality justifications was there's these people are security risks because they can be blackmailed so like mm -hmm. all it really took was just a flip of a switch for like okay well they can't be blackmailed because it's okay and then like so it's just like not necessarily like it was never really like they were inherently like a problem except for the circumstances they were under and then like mm -hmm. it's almost like he provided a veneer for it to just you know switch which is like obviously like probably a good thing for society it's just very interesting right that's a really good point i actually think you know the susceptibility to blackmail one wonders if the study was not necessarily about vindicating what the military thought about mm -hmm. gay and lgbt members but more about figuring out if the susceptibility to blackmail hypothesis was more applicable yeah to. i don't think he was actually talking about blackmail i'm just like thinking oh, through okay. like basically what i heard like fbi spooks saying basically <laughs> you know like yeah that makes sense but uh, that's i think of, i think he was just right. speaking broadly yeah oh, okay yeah i remember you know obviously my newspapers.com obsession uh he was like oh um whatever um but Okay, so like, I don't know if you're gonna include any of that, but um, to get back to what's kind of, I think more concrete about Dr. Starbin, uh, the mm -hmm. military naval base at in Monterey um, is actually not as divorced from UCSE as I think a lot of people construe it to be. Um, the person who did the site analysis for UCSC um, in 1958 that uh, proposed Santa Cruz as one of the places to locate the new Southern University that the, the regions were planning was actually uh, a naval admiral who worked for NOAA. Um, and now the Monterey Bay is designated as, I think, like a NOAA protection area or something. The Monterey is like, Monterey Bay is deeply affiliated with uh, NOAA and the university also had a few connections to the naval operations in Monterey Bay. Yeah, let me, sorry, real quick, Monterey. Oh man, I'm, I was trying to remember if there was a, if I'm thinking of the same naval base. Where Leon Panetta came out of? <laughs> um, no, where is that? Oh. Wait, um, where, it's not the, not the Corona, like Mont the Monterey one and the Corona one are different, right? Like, this so. is where like my lack of knowledge of California really. <laughs> Geography kind of shines. No, I think it's different. I think. What I would yeah. call Monterey, like most notable for, is the uh, amount of astronauts that have been produced from the the postnatal <laughs> graduate school, uh, the development of CSUMB uh, in the '90s, and how that's kind of. I think there's a lot of really interesting similarities with the Pynchon novel Vineland in the College of the Surf. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know how he knew about that, but whatever. If he did know, then he knew. And um, the fact that it was basically governed by two generations of uh, like a CIA director and then the, the subsequent congressional representative was his son. Um, yeah, no, I, I just did another interview where Vineland also sort of tangentially came up and I'm like, oh, I really need to reread that because like <laughs> there's there's so many things in it that like in retrospect, like it seems to be talking about where I'm just like, how did he know that? Yeah. 
I don't want to ascribe him too much power, but just Jesus. Um, oh my gosh, there's only we've only gone through two of these guys. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I start back up with the Navy? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, like, like we said, Dr. Theodore Sarban was not only deeply involved with the Navy after his departure from UCSC, but the actual development of UCSC itself was deeply ingrained with the Navy. Uh, and then I think there's another uh, member of the psychology department at UCSC in those early days that uh, listeners might be interested in that was also deeply affiliated with the Navy. Uh, and that would be it? Dr. Craig Haney. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so some of you may have heard of the Stanford prison experiment, you know, coincidentally, uh, and Dr. Craig Haney is often, I think when I, when you read about him, he's credited as sort of like a a (laughs) co-conspirator, um, a co-author who was, uh, subordinate to Philip Zimbardo, who I think is much more well-known for, uh, you know, being involved in the Stanford prison experiment. Um, but what's interesting is that this is also not brought up a lot for, I think, reasons that are somewhat obvious, but, uh, the office of Naval research funded the Stanford prison (laughs) experiment. (laughs) Um, so uh, kill Bill Siren, you know, um, and, you know, as we know, the office of Naval research was oftentimes a, a front organization for funding projects that were directly or tangentially connected to MK ultra uh, and other studies about, the propensity for torture that ended up, you know, coming up in American universities at very strange and suspect times. That's right. It's such a complicated thing because like the Navy. Okay. And I'm saying this for the listeners, like, and I, I might've said this before, but MK ultra was largely the CIA's project, but the department of defense had one, the Navy had one. The mm-hmm. Department of Energy had one, and none of those projects got formally shut down like MKUltra. So, like, the Navy was doing stuff that never got brought to Congress. And we don't know all of it, but we do have interesting snippets, like that one uh, newspaper uh, article where one psychologist for the Navy said, Yeah, we're trying to make like assassins. <laughs> and then he had to be like, oh, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> yeah, um, which I think David McGowan talks about that a lot mm-hmm. in his book. Uh, and it was a very, it's it's almost too good to be true of an interview. Like one wonders like why he ever, said, why he said that. But when you look at what the ONR uh, was funding, um, a lot of those experiments were like weirdly relevant to the creation of someone who would be able to commit some sort of like heinous or hostile act and i think the stanford prison experiment in particular is is very operative to that and so dr dr craig haney who went on to become a member of the ucsc psychology department in those early days um if you look not at the, at the actual publishing journal but at the publication um at the at the dot mil url um actually published by the onr itself he's listed as the studies main author but everywhere else that you look it's Philip Zimbardo. Yeah. Can I share an anecdote? So for the listeners and such several years ago, many years ago, I was in college and I was taking business classes. I'm not trying to say too much about myself, but I was in business classes, which are for, they're, they're stupid. They're for, (laughs) they're very watered down or whatever. And 
in this business class, we were learning about different, I don't know, it was like business psychology. It was absolute bullshit. But <laughs> they talked about, you know, the Stanford prison experiment. Um, you know, they always teach it with the other one. I forget on the spot. <laughs> but The Milgram Shock yes, experiment? Yes, that yeah. one too. And so I remember reading about the Stanford prison experiment largely for the first time. I was pretty young. And just being like, this sounds like MK Ultra shit. <laughs> and like, sort of like kind of looking around in class and being like, is no one else like weirded out by this? Like, this doesn't really seem like, and obviously the way they teach it, they're like, oh yeah, that was like unethical and it got totally out of hand, this and that. But then I would like look up some of the people and Definitely the way they taught it, it was like only Zimbardo. They didn't even mention Haney, any of that stuff. And like, you know, I sort of like looked a little bit into it and was just like, oh yeah, no, this does seem very weird. And then I sort of like set it aside and didn't think about it for like many years. And then <laughs> it's just like, no, a hundred percent. It's like MK Ultra adjacent basically and what you like it's essentially your posts and your research where i was just like oh no 100 percent, it was like holy shit oh yeah um what's also kind of sad i think in a way is that craig Haney is the one who went on to work with prisoners for the rest of his career mm -hmm. i mean you know i'm not implying anything about the good doctor but to this day he's the one that goes into prisons and makes recommendations for their administration. Yeah, um, he was advocating against uh, isolation, right? Things of that yeah. nature. It's weird because he does seem, you know, quite progressive in what he ended up doing over the course of his career. But, you know, I think if we're to make an uncharitable interpretation, it's almost like whatever new angle they're attempting to approach with the administration of prisoners, uh, he, he might be on the, on the vanguard of that. Mm -hmm. um, and both him and uh, I don't know if Haney was a disciple of, of Milgram, but, you know, Philip Zimbardo was a disciple of Stanley Milgram. Um, and I think one of uh, a member of the, the Twitter sphere, uh, Basalt Anonymous, directed me to the book, mm. uh, The Question of Torture by uh, Alfred McCoy. And Milgram is directly brought up as somebody who might have been, you know, MK Ultra or another, uh, you know, mind control uh, or sort of, I guess, mind control adjacent uh, set of studies administered by a different, you know, governmental organization like the Navy. And Milgram was kind of always weirdly involved in this uh, set of experiments that would study if a person could be driven to commit an atrocity just by administering the right set of psychological conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, when you're talking about the UCSC psychology department, that's kind of interesting because um, Dr. Robert Frazier uh, was the student of Dr. Milgram. And he came to UCSC in 1965. And um, during his time as the disciple of Dr. Milgram, we don't know a, a lot about it because, you know, it was just like his dissertation or whatever. But in, in the Yale collection of Milgram letters, there is one that he wrote to Dr. Robert Frazier before his time at UCSC saying, uh, you're doing really well on your conformity experiment. Let me know if you need any more help. Mm. So, you know, again, you have a member of this department who was not only weirdly involved with the, you know, sort of studies that Milgram-esque studies that were happening, but directly like, yep, okay, I hope your conformity studies doing okay. What's up? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know how much more explicit it can get than that. And then, of course, he went on to form uh, 
a parapsychology institute in Palo Alto, which is not only a little bit LaRoustian, but also makes you wonder because, you know, the CIA was doing remote viewing experiments and many oh, other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Fra- okay. Yeah. Frager. Yeah, I see. Yeah. yeah. And he also was, I don't know if you saw this, he uh, converted to Sufi Islam as well. Oh, what? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought that not only the location of his his uh, institute in Palo Alto was interesting, but he also wrote a textbook. Uh, I think it might have been a parapsychological textbook, um, but it's about uh, the study of personality, which brings us back to IPAR at UC Berkeley and a lot of the psychologists that were brought in after doing OSS CIA personality research, um, which, again, like this entire department yeah. was kind of almost funny. Um, <laughs> it's a little funny i would Which, say a little goofy uh wasn't leary didn't he basically create the i thought maybe i'm misconstruing it but i think i had read that timothy leary actually helped develop one of the tests that screened for cia officers way before he ended up doing all the like lsd stuff yeah if if uh he did it would have gone through ipar because ipar was that institute that mm. developed and instituted a lot of um studies of you know propensity for being in the cia which is you know kind of interesting given what (laughs) probably just screening (laughs) for like sociopathy and like being upper class (laughs) are you crazy and rich come to uc (laughs) berkeley which you know that's still true um (laughs) but also uh ipar did a study on creativity which i'm i don't quite know so like please roast me on my twitter if i'm wrong but i think timothy leary was involved in those early uh study of creativity experiments um, as well, which involved like Truman Capote and a lot of other uh, mm. art figures that were kind of involved in that deeply infiltrated uh, literary scene. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, uh, another Milgram disciple popped up in the department, uh, Dr. Frazier. I might, maybe we can just like speed run the rest of them until we get to the yeah. important point. Um, um, there was Dr. Burt Kaplan, yeah. who was, I think he might have also been involved with Milgram, but I'm not sure. Oh no, he worked with Henry Murray. Um, hmm. the most MK Ultra doctor ever after Louis West and many others. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, he he worked under Dr. Henry Murray and then popped up again doing uh, dream research uh, and studying like the subconscious of a vast majority of, or not a vast majority, but a vast swath of indigenous people in America. Um, yeah, what was it? I, yeah. He was like cataloging the psychedelic dreams of Native Americans or something to that effect? Yeah, it was a, a really extensive dream database um, of Native Americans. And I think uh, I might be wrong, but it also like was involved with a, a parallel or subsequent study involving psychedelic experiences of those same um, Indigenous Americans. And uh, Dr. William Donhoff, who I think he'll come up, but he <laughs> he was also a dream researcher. So that was mm. that was two members of the psychology department who were involved in large scale uh, dream surveys that were also tied to psychedelic study um, at Harvard mm. by Henry Murray. <laughs> Henry Murray, yeah. I don't know if the listeners, I assume that they might know this. I don't want to like mansplain to anyone, but um, he was the one that did MK Ultra experiments on t- uh, on Ted Kaczynski. Um, mm. No, th- thank you for specifying because i was like who's murray again i was trying to recall yeah and then uh, of course theodore starben won the henry murray award so (laughs) (laughs) now okay so i think that i saw now correct me if i'm wrong but 
some people might be saying, okay, this is an interesting collection of weirdos, but right. it, like, did this happen organically or were each of these positions picked by, say, the dean himself? <laughs> I think no, you said that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Um, this is in the thread. Uh, one of the, the oral histories of the founding of UCSC, because it was relatively recent for such a large and important university. Um, the I think he was, was he the associate dean or the very first chancellor of UCSC. Either way, he was the um, he wasn't from the Board of Regents. He was like in charge of the university itself. And he was like the number one guy, the main guy. Um, and a lot of oral histories paint him as kind of relentless and almost ruthless about his screening of everyone at the university from the level of professor up for potential tenure down to like random teaching assistants. Um, he relentlessly screened every single person who came uh, into potential candidacy uh, at UCSC. Um, so, you know, I, I suppose you could be just like all these guys randomly left their esteemed positions at these extremely well endowed and, uh, you know, preeminent sites of psychological study like Berkeley, like Harvard, um, and just decided to come to this random backwater central coast city in California where most residents were over the age of 65. But uh, and then and then it just so happens that that same city becomes the ground zero for serial killers. Ground zero for serial killers, probably less than five years after the university opens, probably 4.2. <laughs> um <laughs> Um, okay, there's one more. I, I skipped Dr. Elliot Aronson, who, you know, you can Google him yourself if you want to. I couldn't find that much about him, except that he, uh, after doing years of study into um, confirmation bias, he suddenly decided he had the scholarly imperative to debunk satanic ritual abuse uh, <laughs> memories. And he was also involved with the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. Um, which it's funny how all the people who are most committed to the position that children be lying are all <laughs> spooks tied in with like the Navy or spooky academia. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I guess it could just be that if you end up being a naval intelligence contractor, you, you're, you know, compelled by your scholarly impulses to say that babies don't know what's going on. They were making it up. They were just lying. Children do know what dead bodies smell like, but uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. one wonders. I guess it kind of. I think the entire summary of this psychology department is that it, it strains the um, strains the the levels of what one is willing to accept as coincidence, especially like you said, given what happens almost immediately after.
And okay, can we maybe talk about David Marlowe now, which is a really the best segue ever, which is both spooky and convenient, I guess. Absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, so we talked about Stanley Milgram. Um, and the evaluation of people's propensity to commit atrocious acts. Um, and there's a book, I think it's called The Man That Shocked the World. I forget the author, but it's basically like a pretty like <laughs> celebratory biography of Dr. Milgram. Um, and it mentions his close personal friend that he made at Harvard in 1966, or not in 1966. Um, he made at Harvard, I think in the 50s, but he was writing letters to him as of 1966. Um, and that would be the psychologist, Dr. David Marlowe at uh, University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, he was not just an academic friend of Milgram, but they were, they were actually very close in their personal lives. Um, hmm. So one, you know, whatever. Uh, but the thing about Dr. David Marlowe that makes him interesting is that he was one of two psychiatrists besides Dr. Donald Lundy to interview all three serial killers that were active around the same time in Santa Cruz from 1972 and 1974. And for the listeners who don't recall, who were those three? So you have, I think the most well-known, if I'm not wrong, uh, Ed Kemper, who mm. uh, killed his grandparents, was sent to a juvenile facility, he was out of the juvenile facility after being, or no, was he at a Tuscadero or was he at a facility for kids? You he might was at a Tuscadero. <clears throat> okay. I'm pretty sure. That's so much worse. Oh my God. Yeah. He was at a Tuscadero. The psychologists were like, oh, it's fine. Right. This guy's okay. Moved back <laughs> with his mom. Uh, his mom was actually employed at UCSC. Um, I think Mindhunter calls her like a, says she was still a social worker when he moved back, but that's not true. She was for UCSC. Um, just one of many interesting omissions, <laughs> omissions or <laughs> tactical inaccuracies. Take yeah. your pick. Children don't be lying, but perhaps FBI people be lying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was Dr. Or not Dr. That was Ed Kemper, who was not a doctor. Don't <laughs> misquote me. Uh, Ed Kemper, and then he went on to uh, commit a bunch of sexually vicious and atrocious crimes toward women. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was our Mullen, who uh, I think Dave McGowan, who is a pretty interesting source for this this episode. But yeah, he talks about the uh, really random and seemingly like meaningless collection of victims that Herb Mullen was said to have murdered. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, and just for the listeners here, let me pull up that quote. It's worth probably revisiting. Let's oh, yeah. see. I don't have um, <laughs> No worries. I think. Come on. No, I do have it here. Well, basically, Mullen had no MO. Like, you know how, like, Ed Kemper would basically do the same things every kill. And, you know, fundamentally, like, they might progress in some way. But, like, Ed Mullen basically did, like, a bizarre grab bag of crimes. Like, it didn't really make sense what he was accused of doing. Yeah, and John Douglas uh, says, I think, in his his book, Mindhunter, or the documentary, um, that the definition of serial killers includes a typology of their victims, and the fact that that typology is so personally enrapturing or interesting to them that they feel compelled to repeat the act until, I I don't know what until, but he he basically does specify that a, a typology is necessary 
to define a serial killer. Uh, so the idea that Herb Mullen is one of the first examples of this new type of killer that, again, like when McGowan says this too, but when Kemper and Mullen were killing, like this didn't have a name. There was no term serial killer. It wasn't really a thing. Well, that, um, that's the thing though, because there was the, there was a term, it was sequence killer and oh. they basically just rebranded it. They acted like they invented the idea, but like Germans in like Weimar Germany were like, Oh, we have the sequence killers and or I can't do accents, whatever, but like <laughs> basically they didn't invent it. It's like insane. That's cra- Which is, that's crazy that they were like, you know, they created not only this whole new definition, but the, the people who were supposed to be examples of this new term that they supposedly came up with, he didn't even fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, every, like that's why Ed Kemper, I, I suspect is so famous and her, no one really knows her Mullen because like, oh, no. he didn't really probably do half the murders, if any, like, I don't, yeah. I'm not trying to like be the her Mullen defender, which we'll get to that in a, maybe in a little bit but like hey i mean no uh <laughs> yeah he uh it, it's definitely kind of strange especially the idea you know oh my gosh I, i'm quoting the going again but he actually i think he's one of the only people that maybe talks about this in a mm-hmm. skeptical light but he and ed kemper supposedly buried their victims right next to each other during the same year well one one bought like two bodies were dumped very close to each other. And then like they were, their like general dumping grounds were also quite close. It was like mm-hmm. very interesting. Mm-hmm. But I think what you said, it was pretty, was definitely astute about how Herb Mullen, I don't know if it's Herbert Herb. Um, he is from Santa Cruz. So I'm just going to, I'm going to say like Herb, because I think that I have a particular privilege to how we speak. Um, oh. <laughs> but oh. And by the way, I do have the quote, like you can, in a no, second, go ahead. I'll, I'll read it. I okay. Yeah. Okay. This is from Program to Program to Kill, <clears throat> and it's about Herb Mullins, Herb Herb Mullins, uh, assortment of crimes. The seemingly random assembled set of crimes credited to Mullins stand as perhaps the most ludicrous use of the term serial killer on record. The first victim was a homeless man beaten to death with a baseball bat for no apparent reason on a lonely stretch of road. The next was a girl who was repeatedly stabbed, then sliced open, mutilated, and generally made a mess of what most people would think as a typical serial killing. The next five victims were all killed in a single night at two different residences, both occupied by known drug traffickers and their families. That's the quote. Yeah, which... um... It's pretty interesting. I don't know specifically what drug traffickers he's referencing, but drug trafficking in Santa Cruz would would pop up again with this, you know, circle of almost Livershite, uh, Mary Pranksters type uh, people that that were operating during the era. Um, and again, in the informants in uh, a, a, the third case, which I think, you know, you said that the the Mullen case is not. It's an absurd use of the serial killer term. Mm-hmm. And I think when you conflate the murders that happened in Santa Cruz during this era, uh, the, the even the most absurd, which is why it's never talked about and so little is known about it, um, was the John Lindley Fraser murder, which is the first forensic psychological assessment that David Marlowe ever did. And that would become one of Dr. Marlowe's, you know, main income generators for the rest of his life. <laughs> 
Show um, off. Speak on it. Yeah. Well, if if I may for a second, let me just talk <laughs> about. So, Dr. Marlowe, during this epidemic that's happening um, in Santa Cruz, which is stretched from you know 1972 about 74. Before this, when he was hired to work at UCSE, um, one of his main psychological or I guess academic qualifications was the Marlowe Crown Social Desirability Scale, which, you know, I, I'm no like psychology class taker, but to the best of my knowledge, it's still one of the, the standards that is taught in social psychology around the country. And it is a scale for the quantification of how much a person will act in accordance with a, a motive of being approved socially, um, how much they are motivated by the approval of those around them. Um, and when I think you <laughs> that's realize- such a, That's such a bleak thing to study. Like, right? <laughs> that's like more 1984 than like things that most people call 1984. That's so freaking <laughs> like authoritarian and dark. And it's so, one, you have to think like, first of all, who was funding this for the field of social psychology and why in the world did they say, yeah, I think let's bring this guy to this new place that we just founded. <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, like we said earlier, they're screening every single hire uh, meticulously mm -hmm. by this psycho Dean Henry. He wasn't, I mean, not a psycho, but he was very fastidious for reasons that we're left to assume. And when you start assuming, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, so the Marlowe Crown Social Desirability Scale, and I believe this was either his doctoral thesis or a famous paper of his, um, it was called The Approval Motive, um, about how people are, are motivated by approval of authority figures and people that they deem as socially important. So um, the, the fact, I think, you know, it's 1984, what would be the most 1984 possible application of this theory by, by one of the two men that invented uh, the social de desirability scale. Um, you oh, know, no. <laughs> uh, to me, <laughs> uh, becoming the, the interviewer of a variety of serial murderers and other criminals is a pretty, to me, yeah, that's a pretty 1984 application of, of that type of research. <laughs> uh, luckily, that didn't happen. Uh, it did. Um, I'm not even, that's not even funny. Like, it actually, he, he went on to become an expert witness. Um, Which, like, it's sort of like... <laughs> like I've talked to like friends and family who like, for instance, I had one relative who got really into just like straight sort of like just true crime stuff. And that relative was like getting into how like basically ballistics is a made up field. <laughs> and then you realize that like all the psychologists who are called to be expert witnesses are at best not qualified and at worst like i don't know creating serial killers <laughs> and then you start to realize that like no expert witness is like they're like these are not real like these are like uh, it's yeah real. he was definitely an expert but was he an expert at understanding forensic psychology or at being best friends with stanley mogram and getting people to do what you want if they have social problems mm -hmm. uh, yeah you know um, so Dr. David Marlowe was one of the most preeminent members of this psychology department. I believe he was on it until, until he died, which was in 1990 of a, uh, of a brain tumor. Um, yeah. So 
Well, good on him for making it through 1984. <laughs> Sorry, that was funny. Um, <laughs> unironically. Okay, wait, can I, uh, can I take a second to, mm-hmm. I feel like this is probably like a good Fraser murder segue. Can I like pull up my, my doc? Absolutely. Oh, hell yeah. Um, also, I know we've been talking for a while. Like, is this too long? I feel like that could be edited down to not that long, right? Listen, I don't think there was anything I'll probably edit out except oh, maybe yeah. okay. like me like or saying me. something wrong. The X Men. <laughs> I know. I, mean, I might. I might keep that. I don't. Oh, care. I think you should. Francis Charles Xavier. I mean, are you fucking kidding me? That's his name. I'm gonna like look into that after. Like, you I should tweet about that. Probably. Okay. <laughs> um, and also, like, I know you talked to. Uh, our, our good bestie Dr. Peg for like hours and I listened to all of it so like fuck it I feel you know I feel entitled to speak for mm-hmm. it uh, I, yeah oh sorry you finally have a oh wait you've had another girl on the podcast okay well you finally have your second woman on the podcast wait, you're not no I don't think I did have another girl I think you are actually the first oh and you're gonna cut me off wow okay that's so typical I'm actually I'm disgusted um <laughs> um wow that's uh yeah this is feminism we finally won I am now canceled. Oh, you know where Maid Russell actually? Um, she lived in Carmel until she died, which is hmm. Monterey County. Interesting. Isn't Man. that kind of like goofy? <laughs> uh, yeah. No, like Maid Russell probably is like I know that like anytime you find like you or I or anyone like researches some weird spook with like the stupidest name, it's like very pension-esque, but like I feel like Mae Russell actually is one of the side characters that, like, you know, Doc Sportello goes to, like, ask about something, you know? Oh, yeah. She she has a lot of really... I don't think I'm going to bring this up, but I might. I don't think it really happened, but she was supposedly received this... Uh, you know what? I will bring this up just to speculation. It's on Cavduff, so I trust it. Mm-hmm. Um, she received this letter that, like, John Lindley Fraser was uh, a body double, the Zodiac Killer, and the doctor that he <laughs> murdered... The doctor that he murdered, like he was murdered three days before the, the broken glasses became important in the in the Tate LaBianca testimony. So supposedly he was like the eye surgeon, the guy that had the glasses. Uh, but I don't think that's right because he wasn't an optometrist. He was a, he was an eye surgeon. Um, <laughs> okay. Anyway, let me. Sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a sip of my diet coke because again, thumb drink. Oh, you blasting the guess. DC. That's what I'm drinking too. <laughs> Well, okay, I don't, I don't know if it'll come up that I worked at the boardwalk, but I worked there for so long, and we got free soda, so uh, we, I, I got addicted to Diet Coke when I worked there. I actually, in, in a very spooky twist, I worked at the food place, the soft serve ice cream, which is directly next to where Robert Anton Wilson's wife creepily, like, shoved an ash, ashes box above her head. Um, <laughs> it's called carousel cones, and uh, I, like, now knowing that, I'm like, oh my god, was he, like, lurking around, like, psychically? I don't fucking... And it's the entrance to the basement that that comes up in the Jordan Peele movie. Um, yeah, I was gonna bring that up actually. Like what? You, like, <laughs> I think we should talk about. It. I think it'll come up organically. Yeah. Um, okay. Wait. Okay. Back to whatever. Oh my gosh. My my one chance to free my boy. Um, <laughs> Is he still alive? Oh no, he, he died by suicide. R.I.P. Yeah. To a to a real one. Nico Fash. <laughs> um, Okay, so yeah, we were talking about Dr. David Marlowe. Um, he again suddenly has this this career pivot where he was a person who studied the approval motive in social psychology. He he directly formulated a scale that was about how much people want to be socially approved, 
And then suddenly in 1970, he makes a very dramatic career pivot, which would continue for the next two decades till he died, which was forensic interviewer and psychiatrist and expert on if somebody is uh, criminally insane or not. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, uh, he actually, until he died, uh, my, my mom mm. took this class when she was at UCSC. Um, he taught abnormal psychology, which, yeah. Which, tell me, no, there's no way that's the same class that Mr. Kemper was attending, right? That's Wait. a different class, right? I don't, I didn't think I'd Kemper went to UCSC can you tell me about that um no I thought and we can cut this if you know whatever but like you said that your mom took a class with Ed Kemper oh no she took a class with Dr. Marlowe gotcha yeah okay. and that was oh in... so okay so she didn't meet Ed Kemper oh no she was uh she, I think okay, her, I she, she came like an 85 or something okay um but Dr. Marlowe uh was teaching a class called abnormal psychology mm. informed by his interactions with the Santa Cruz serial killers, um, which when you think about it is actually kind of funny because when he uh, was talking to the newspaper sometime uh, in, in the eighties, they asked him since he'd in interviewed all three Santa Cruz serial killers, you know, like what, what makes you think they did it? What, what, what was different about these guys? And he was like, the Redwoods make people crazy. <laughs> the least scientific, <laughs> like possible explanation. <laughs> <laughs> for the guy who's the gatekeeper for if you're criminally insane. If you're criminally insane in this city, which it's just so funny because he interviewed all of them and the newspaper. Um, it wasn't just the Santa Cruz Sentinel asked him and the student newspaper uh, asked him and they were like, so what what happened here? And he was like, well, sometimes if you're nuts, you end up in the Redwoods. Thank you, <laughs> Dr. Marlowe. <laughs> which if you like, needed any, <laughs> any more proof that he wasn't doing anything. I don't know. <laughs> Which now, again, maybe my California geography is going to throw me off, but isn't Bohemian <laughs> Grove in the Redwoods? Bohemian Grove, uh, it is in the Redwoods. Uh, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Was he right? <laughs> <laughs> he was so correct. Um, okay. So let's, we can start. So again, uh, David Marlowe, after a few years at University of California, Santa Cruz, uh, he decides to take this really big career pivot which is to forensic psychiatrist mm -hmm. um and the reason that he he chooses to do this uh is the murders committed by john lindley fraser on the night of october 19th 1970 um, which was a monday and uh this was uh, let me take a second i want to quote from like a, a true crime website or something uh the wikipedia mm -hmm. doesn't have it open uh i just want to like let's just Start just another like entry in my endless war against wikipedia <laughs> oh my god i have to talk about this yeah so um uh john lindley fraser uh murdered five people uh dr victor oda who was an ophthalmologist which is like an eye surgeon um he murdered his two sons his secretary uh the, the secretary of dr oda uh dorothy catawaller and he murdered the the wife of dr victor oda uh virginia and uh, he murdered them, according to the story, if I may be a little skeptical. Uh, but Peter mm. Chang, this is, Peter Chang was the DA who will become very important who prosecuted <laughs> the John Lindley Fraser murder. And when I say that I think it's a little 
insane that the murders could have happened in the way that was presented at trial. That's that's not me. That's Dr. Peter or not Dr. Peter. Sorry, uh, Doctor. Oh my gosh, Peter Chang, Esquire, <laughs> not Doctor. <laughs> he said himself, "I know it's a little outlandish to think it could have happened this way, but it's <laughs> possible." That's what you call being a good lawyer. Listen, <laughs> I really need this conviction. Please help. <laughs> you're addressing the jury, like, come on, I really need this. And he didn't just say that to the jury. It was also to the newspaper. It, it was twice. He said, "I know it's." Uh, outlandish, which is the word he used, but it's possible. <laughs> uh, we'll see. So, you know, according to what happened, uh, John Lindley Fraser was someone who lived about a mile away from the residence of the Ota family. Um, and the Otas were very rich because of their, you know, the, the patriarch, uh, Dr. Victor Ota. Um, and they lived on this incredibly like expansive and uh, very I guess, ostentatious kind of mansion uh, in the hills of Soquel, which is not in the formally incorporated Santa Cruz city. Uh, it's in Santa Cruz County, but it's probably two miles away from the university. Um, and, and both the house itself and the place where uh, Lindley Fraser were living were probably a mile away from where the first acid test happened in 65. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the doctor lived in this really expansive mansion with his family, uh, with his children. And uh, according to, uh, you know, what, what was presented at trial, uh, John Lindley Frazier uh, waited in the house because he became fascinated with the ostentatious wealth of the Ota family. Um, and he had previously, according to some sources, been in their house, uh, stolen a pair of very expensive binoculars, and then decided, you know, I'm going to go back. And uh, at trial, one of his supposed friends said he had a habit of going to people's houses and lying in wait. But of course, this didn't come up until the prosecution presented it at trial. So again, supposedly around, you know, 3 p.m., he was waiting in the house um, Mm -hmm. because he hated them. And while he was waiting in the house, uh, maybe trying to rob them or or just be crazy, I don't really know what they were uh, suggesting he was doing. Um, He saw an, an animal skin rug um, and Dr. Lundy and Dr. Marlowe uh, support this idea that he saw an animal skin rug. And because he was very involved in the environmental movement, it made him go insane uh, and freak out. So Dr. Oda uh, comes home from work and he shoots, or no, he doesn't shoot him yet, sorry. <laughs> he ties up Dr. Oda with a silk scarf that he found in Dr. Oda's house and puts him in a bedroom. And then he, keeps, he just sits there. He's just, he's just chilling. Uh, and then the Oda, one of the Oda kids, uh, comes home. Oh my gosh, wait, I'm so sorry. I have to start over. This is such an insane story. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. I have to start. This is crazy. Oh my God. Okay. So he's just sitting in the house. He's waiting. He's been set off by his, uh, animal skin rug obsession. And, uh, for 15 minutes after she gets off work, the wife of Dr. Oda, Virginia decides to come home and, uh, get something. Um, it's not really clear what it was. And then he ties her up with a silk scarf and leaves her in the bedroom. And then he waits. Uh, so, so Dr. Oda gets a call that the mother never showed up to pick up the kids. So he sends his, his secretary who was at the office with him to pick up one of the children because the two brothers that were there went to separate schools. So she picks up this one kid and takes him home at like probably 345. And then John Lindley Fraser ties them both up with silk scarves and puts them in two separate rooms. And then another hour passes and the other kid that went to a different elementary school because the boys were, I think, seven and 10. 
uh, Dr. Victor Oda decides, you know, whatever, my wife's not cooperating, my secretary sucks, I'm going to go get him myself. He, he gets the other child, takes him to the home, and by now it's around 5.30. And then he ties up the boy and Dr. Oda. Then he gets all five of these people who have been tied up in separate bedrooms and takes them out to the pool, which is in the back of the house. He lines them up all against the pool execution style after having been tied up at the hands. And according to uh, D.A. Chang, he then demanded that Victor Oda burn down his own home. And when Victor Oda refused, he shot him three times in the chest with a 38 revolver and pushed him into the pool. Then he put down his 38 revolver and took out a 22. He then shot all remaining four people execution style and put them in the pool. Everybody was, unfortunately, after having been shot, thrown into the pool, and this is how they were found. So mm. then John Lindley Fraser goes into the basement, and he types up a note which uh, declares that World War III has begun against the materialists of the world and uh, involves a bunch of tarot imagery. Uh, I can read the note in full um, in it. a minute. Okay. Let me get it up. Um, sorry, I'll, I'll just read it right now. Uh, cause it makes it even more insane. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> none of this story is making any sense. Okay, right. So, uh, he, he puts these five people into the pool after shooting them with, uh, two different weapons, um, sequentially. And, uh, he, he goes into the basement, happens to find Dr. Oda's typewriter. And then he says, uh, he writes a note on the typewriter, which says Halloween, 1970. Today, World War III will begin as brought to you by the people of the free universe. From this day forward, anyone or company of persons who misuses the natural environment or destroys some will suffer the penalty of death by the people of the free universe. I and my comrades from this day forth will fight until death or freedom against anything or anyone who does not support natural life on this planet. Materialism must die or mankind will. Knight of Wands, Knight of Cups, Knight of Pentacles, Knight of Swords. Um... <laughs> <laughs> okay i mean if you were like a 35 year old defense contractor trying to sound like charles manson <laughs> whatever so he writes this note on the typewriter the bodies are still in the pool he walks upstairs he gets uh keys for two cars that were owned uh by the odas he, he drives one in front of the house uh and then puts the note under the windshield of that car i think it was a rolls royce i'm not sure and then he takes their other car and he uses that to block. The um, he gets out, he gets into this other car, he blocks the door with it. Um, and then he goes around the house, puts gasoline at various points of this mansion, uh, and he sets it on fire. Then he gets in a third car owned by uh, Mrs. Virginia Oda, the wife, and he drives for a few miles uh, toward Felton, toward the railroad. Um, Felton is located off of Highway 9. It's a little bit north of Soquel. Where this happened um and he he gets to an, an overpass um there's there used to be a railroad that that ran through the redwoods up here because of the logging industry and so he leaves the oldsmobile uh by the railroad he he gets out and he leaves three different sets of, of footprints next to the car <laughs> <laughs> and he runs home with no car to his shack uh, where his mother lives at uh, 4500 Cornwall Road in Soquel. He waits there uh, for, I think, 48 hours. And when he comes, the, he doesn't put up any fight whatsoever. 
In fact, the police officer is quoted as saying it's like he wanted to be arrested. And that is the uh, my favorite murder story of the John Lindley Fraser murders, which is a little involved. Um, but yeah, uh, so. <laughs> well, I mean, I would just say, you know, I want the listeners to sit and contemplate almost in meditation. Everything you know about serial killers, like, does this seem like either a crime of passion or the crime of like a person with a particular fixation that they just, you know, they go on the hunt and then they do this. No, like none of this doesn't match any known serial killer typology. Like this sounds like, I don't know, maybe uh, a cult, like a murder cult perhaps of which there were rumors to be in this area at that time. Or oh, yeah, uh, maybe organized crime or something. It certainly doesn't sound like a serial killer. It doesn't sound like a serial killer. In fact, it's the one of the interesting things about this case is that before, from the 19th to the 21st, um, before John Lee Fraser had been named as a suspect, um, there was literally, and I say literally, no consideration that these murders could have possibly been committed by one person, particularly because of the set of three footprints found at the Rincon Hill Tunnel. Um, but it wasn't just because of the footprints, uh, all of the witnesses that were nearby, um, one woman, uh, who was near the Rincon Hill, uh, overpass where Mrs. Oda's car was found with the three footprints, saw three people. Um, she saw two men who I think she said that they had long hair and that they were kind of hippie looking. Um, and she saw a woman and then, uh, about, I think it was in Bonnie Dune and Bonnie Dune is on the coast of Santa Cruz, probably 10 miles north of Santa Cruz city itself. Uh, it's still in the county. It's just a really rural part of the county. Um, a cafe owner called the cops because he saw really three extremely creepy hippie looking types come into his store. Uh, and he said, David McGowan quotes this part, actually. He says that one of the, the hippies, the girl, looked super dazed. And she was like waving a, a red wand around, being all creepy with it. So, you know, and every single newspaper article that was written about the case before John Lee Fraser was named said the people that committed this crime, including D.A. Chang, because he murdered five people and then supposedly they just sat there like, you know, non-playable characters for hours until he killed them with yeah, two different weapons. And tied up with like silk scarves. That's not exactly like. And just around their hands as well. Yeah, that doesn't sound exactly like a workable way of doing that i don't know especially if you're just like a psycho that was like i'm gonna do this because i was waiting in a materialist house and as dr lundy said he got set off i guess by uh an animal skin rug that he saw on the floor which i'm gonna say again for the listeners if you think that god is telling you to kill rich people to prevent the environment from being destroyed like i'm i'm saying hear hear them out hear hear what god's saying but if, if that God is saying to then kill an ophthalmologist, say, no, 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 this doesn't seem like God. Because yeah. <laughs> I assume that God would probably pick a more relevant target. That's all I'm going to say. Perhaps. Just, just be more critical with your revelations is all I'm saying. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, and let me just, before we get into the story of this, I'm sorry, this might take a while. I might talk for a long time about this. I, I, there's just so much. You're, you're everybody fine. was lying. Everybody, lawyers be lying. Um, yeah. So <laughs> uh, Dr. Oda was actually 
a somewhat interesting figure, which doesn't, I'm not at all attempting to imply anything because regardless mm-hmm. of whether or not, you know, finally Fraser did this all on his own, it was a horrible tragedy. Um, but when one thinks about the sort of multiple, I guess, species about serial killers put forward kind of by David McGowan and other people who skeptically study the serial killer phenomenon that began with this murder, um, Dr. Oda was not just a random rich guy. He was an Air Force major who had been an ophthalmologist for the Army, or not for the Army, I guess, for the Air Force, at Mm. Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Mm. Who then moved to Santa Cruz, um, used his funds to to found the uh, very first hospital within the city of Santa Cruz, which is Dominican Hospital. Um, And he did so with a lot of really... uh, aristocratic old money members of this kind of small town that was the same coalition of old money interests that ended up participating in the site selection of UCSC. Um, And one thing that's kind of, you know, one wonders if it's relevant, but before the murder, I think it was in 1969, uh, Dr. Oda, who worked with an an ophthalmologist and a dentist in the same office, um, (laughs) his, which I know you, okay, so without touching on them, uh, he, eight ounces of cocaine solution were burgled from his office. <laughs> his ophthalmology office. Interesting. You know, Was yeah. there a medical use for cocaine for ophthalmology that I'm not aware of? That's what I was, I mean, I read it and I was like, did you say cocaine? Did you say cocaine? Like I mean, coke? I, maybe it makes I don't your know. eyes dilate. I, I don't know. <laughs> that, I guess that, yeah, I don't know. If any ophthalmologists happen to be tuning into Programs of Chilton, I, 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 you know, let me know. Sound off um, in the comments. Sound off in the comments. Yeah. Um, so, again, uh, there are richer people in the city of Santa Cruz. I will say that. There are richer people in the SoCal Hills. Um, and, you know, he did have these connections. So one wonders if his designation as a target was entirely random. Although, of course, that doesn't mean to imply that he, anything, you know, that happened yeah, to him or his family was deserved whatever. in any way. It just makes you think about the targets that were selected by various serial killers, um, especially because, unfortunately, Dr. Oda had been the victim of a family massacre before, except that he had survived um, when he was still in the army his entire family happened to be wiped out by a typhoon when he was serving in the air force overseas. Jeez. Yeah. So (laughs) who knows, right? Whatever. Um, But anyway, so this horrible, terrible crime happens. The, uh, the Santa Cruz County sheriffs who are called because it's not in the city, they they show up and the entire mansion is just like burned into the ground on fire. It's terrible. There's, there's two cars in front of the mansion. um, And one of them has this note on it that somehow stays unburnt. It's typewritten, so uh, they assumed that it was some sort of premeditated crime because, you know, the, the proposition he went into the basement and wrote it on a typewriter is, to me, the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but they come to the house and immediately assume that this was multiple perpetrators because there was two different weapons, because there was three sets of footprints, because there was three people seen running away from the crime. Um, and one of the very interesting things to me, this is my orange backpack, a crazy person rant that I have, but I promise you, it's crazy. So one of the wait, wait, the, wait real witness, quick. What what uh, is what does orange backpack refer to? I'll this is I'll get into it right now. Okay. All right. So uh, the murder happens on the 19th of October. On the 21st of October, 
one of the witnesses that reports to the newspaper seeing three long-haired hippie type people running away from the scene of the crime says that he saw one of the hippies carrying an orange backpack. At trial, another report emerges that it was in the backseat of the car that was found with the three footprints, but this isn't necessarily substantiated. I don't really think it's true. Um, but yeah, so before John Lee Frazier is ever identified in the case, um, one of the witnesses independently suggests that he saw one of these three people carrying a bright orange backpack, which, you know, to me is actually a pretty uncommon <laughs> color for a knapsack. Um, yeah, maybe more in the 70s, but even still, I'm sure it was never the most common. And it's such a specific detail. I think you're, I guess you're right that like, you know, you're in the Santa Cruz mountains, you're in the Redwoods, it's 19, 1970, whatever, you're, you know, you're crazy. Still but, though. <laughs> still though, right? Um, and so after John Lindley Fraser is identified as a suspect, um, the orange backpack comes up, but it comes up in four different ways um <laughs> all brought forward at the trial um so let me say just let me just quote real quick uh john lindley fraser's mother pat pascal owned the little shack where he supposedly lived at the time of the crimes um and i quote from the newspaper the santa cruz sentinel uh mrs pascal told the court she left her home the day after the slayings and went to nevada to look for some property there she said she had been out more or less planning a trip for a year uh, she told the court she didn't tell anyone she was going because it was none of their business. She returned home Friday afternoon, about eight hours after her son's capture in a nearby shed, and the next evening found a backpack next to the door in the shed when she went to get cleaning gear for a janitorial job she was to do. She found a 45 caliber automatic pistol elsewhere on the property. She said, <laughs> a, of the backpack, a 45 caliber. Um, she said, John's was a brighter orange. Okay, so according to, you know, whatever. Um, she was the one that found the backpack, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, then again at trial, after Detective Siebel searched the shack area, District Attorney's Inspector Ray Belgard discovered a sawed-off shotgun stolen from the Donald Muni residence in Soquel and an orange backpack containing a 45 automatic uh, alleged to have been stolen from the Ota home. Um, so the same trial, Dr. Ray Belgard discovers the backpack. <laughs> uh, that's weird um okay and then again at trial dennis summers the caretaker for fraser's mother on monday told the jury he found a 45 caliber pistol a binoculars case and a backpack in a rabbit shed near fraser's mountain shack summers said he drove uh with fraser's mother to nevada they were gone three days and he found the articles when they returned he wiped the pistol clean of all fingerprints because he didn't want to have his on it <laughs> Um, weird, whatever. Then again, a number of items resembling prominently mentioned clues in the Ota murder case turned up Sunday afternoon by private investigators working for the public defender's office. Investigators Harold Cartwright and Bill Tubbs turned up an orange backpack, a straw hat, a sleeping bag, a machete, and a 45 caliber automatic pistol. <laughs> hey man, who found the backpack? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, that, that's just a little touch of the goofiness that is to come. So supposedly, John Lindley Fraser is arrested two days after the murder. He just sits there. He waits as one does after murdering five people one by one. Just he chilling. Sits there. He's chilling. Uh, he's programmed. Okay, not programmed to chill. <laughs> Boo. 
yeah, he's just <laughs> sitting there. And then the, uh, the area is thoroughly searched by the two officers that arrest him. And then one of four different people finds this backpack with a pistol inside that one of has the same color as uh, the, the three witnesses that were running away from the scene of the crime, according to multiple witnesses. <laughs> I mean, okay. So when I did the initial episodes on FBI versus program to kill, like, I think it was the Kemper and Mullen trials. Like I sort of went through some of the ways in which the trials were just absolute bullshit. And then uh-huh. like, I mean, like, I didn't know all of this about the Fraser trial, but it's just like, this is like kangaroo shit. This is like just ridiculous. It's fucking crazy. Um, and so most of the, this evidence, including Dennis Summers, who was the, the caretaker for Pat Pascal, who was uh, Fraser's mom, um, he was employed at the Catalyst Club in downtown Santa Cruz. <laughs> and he was uh, the co-worker of William Roger Crone, who were, the two of them came forward to Santa Cruz police, I think 72 hours after the murders, to uh, identify John Lily Fraser. Because after t- talking to Detective Bill Tubbs, who was an early investor in the Catalyst and also frequented it just as a, as a guy. <laughs> he uh, was talking to these two Catalyst employees that happened to be the two neighbors of John and Lee Frazier uh, at this random remote mountain uh, you know, property that his mom owned and rented to some students. So these two, uh, I, I checked the news people, they really were his neighbors, but they just happened to work at the Catalyst Club, happened to run into Bill Tubbs and happened to tell him a story that their friend had been ranting about the environment and the evils of materialism for weeks and before this crime had happened. Um, and they, because it was weighing on their conscience, he brought them to the cops where they then confessed and Fraser was arrested. Um, so these guys, these informants who later, I think they got a $50,000 reward for their efforts. That, um, that is so much money. That it's is so much money. <laughs> so like when you look at the going rate for informants in the seventies, like, they were not making $50,000. That is ridiculous. No. Uh, yeah, it was some sort of reward that they split. And I think mm-hmm. the overall reward was like 300000 but today that's about 50000 is about $300,000. So <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> okay, so yeah, you know, these, these guys are some, some of the main sources for evidence in the entire case. They are the only ones, them and their wives, uh, Dennis Somers, William Roger Crone, uh, and two other guys named uh, Michael Madden and Jarvis McFarland. And then, of course, Inspector Bill Tubbs, bestie of the Catalyst Club, where these two informants just coincidentally happened to work. Um, they are some of the only ones that gave any source whatsoever that John Lindley Fraser uh, had been in the Oda home, that he had talked about the evils of environmentalism or materialism, that he in any way was a drug addict or hippie. Um, John Lindley Fraser was a, a high school dropout from Santa Cruz who um, was an auto mechanic. He, he worked with an auto shop. Um, but according to these guys, they had they, they were like a brother to him. Um, they, they said that he was like my brother. Um, and he had told them all the time about how he just wanted to kill people because the environment was so important and he loved it so much. These guys are the only source for that, both at trial and in the investigation. Um, and now, if we get a little into them, um, one of them, I, I forgot, but Joseph Cole, was a third of these guys that lived at the at the Pet Pascal property where John Lindley Fraser was shacked up. He also worked for the Catalyst Club. He uh, was 
was arrested in July of 1970 for stealing a motorcycle and placed on probation. Then there's also William Roger Crone, who <laughs> was sentenced, or no, he wasn't sentenced. He was arraigned for the possession of marijuana on October 16, 1970. His sentencing was on October 19, 1970, which uh, was the day that John Lindley uh, Fraser did the murder. <laughs> so, like, they really didn't even try. They were just like, holy shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, like, John Lindley Fraser probably really wasn't even brainwashed then, huh? Like, he might have just been a weird drifter dude. Is that your yeah. read? Or what? I don't know. Uh, it, it's kind of weird. So, John Lindley Fraser, uh, in 1964, some unspecified incident happened where he went to a juvenile facility in Santa Cruz during like mm. one of the first years that it was open. He might have even gone to a Tascadero at some point, but I can't really find a source for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, but he he went to juvenile detention in 64 um, when he still, I think, would have been in high school. It might have been before he dropped out even. Um, mm. And there is some other weird stuff that, that happened with that. Like his mother was uh, a prize winning bunny farmer and the president of the Santa Cruz Rabbit Breeding Association um, on the day of the murders, uh, or no, two weeks before the murders. A series of rabbits were found beheaded. Twelve rabbits were laid in a line beheaded outside of Santa Cruz Juvenile Hall. Um, so maybe, I, I don't know. Uh, and there's yeah. also a source, I think, that says they saw a shaggy, long-haired man they didn't recognize driving away from the scene of the crime. Um, Cavdef thinks that this hypothesis that he was a getaway driver is probably a little bit more plausible than him doing all the murders. Mm. So he might have uh, been involved, but he was just... Because I think there's a fair precedent for, like, picking the least important person and making them the fall guy. Like, that probably happened with David Berkowitz, for instance. I mean... Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think... I, I think that that might have um, been what happened, especially uh, because I think of the backpack, which John Lindley Fraser owned an orange backpack. One of the uh, witnesses saw the people carrying one and then the backpack ends up at his cabin. So, you know, if he was some sort of fall guy, all the evidence, however stupid it was to put a 45 in there, um, coordinate your fucking uh, murder ploy. Um, it was his possession that he'd already owned. So mm-hmm. I think that, there was some sort of like knowledge and I don't know what is up with every single informant being his neighbor at this remote mountain shack rented by his mom and also working at the catalyst club. And then they all come forward and they're like, he wouldn't stop talking about how he wanted to kill five people on October 19th because of the environment. <laughs> uh, I like, I don't need to sound that crazy, but were they, why did they live there? Why'd they move there? They all moved there around 69, 68. Why? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like, so William, yeah. Oh, sorry. Well, no. And then also just like the notes that he supposedly wrote, like, you're right. Like, it just doesn't sound like a crazy person. It sounds like a FBI agent trying to <laughs> come up with some, and it's like kind of confused. It sort of mixes tarot in with like environmentalism, but like not in a way that environmentalists actually sound. It's just mm. very bizarre. And it's bizarre because I think the Santa Cruz Sheriff, they didn't release the note until two days after the murders happened. And it was supposedly found typewritten on a burning car. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you're, if you're that much of a truther, which I, I'm a truther about this case in many ways, maybe the note wasn't even found at the scene. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I was going to ask, by the way, I think I saw you posted some tarot cards. Uh, what, like, were they his, were they Frazier's or was I misunderstanding the post? I think I misunderstood when I uh, found that picture. Uh, it, it was attributed in the newspaper as being his tarot cards, but no tarot cards were found. Um, but one of the informants, uh, the, the catalyst uh, employee informants, said that John Lindley Fraser carried a deck of tarot cards with him at all times. Okay, but it was reported that that deck was his. That deck was a random deck, I think, that the Sentinel editor found. Oh, okay. Interesting. But, yeah, I'm not quite sure. It was a creepy-looking deck, though, and looked almost hand-drawn, so maybe they really did find it with him and then retracted it because their story doesn't make sense. I don't know. Yeah, I'd like to figure that out because it was a remarkably spooky-looking tarot deck. And, like... I'm I'm not like getting witchy per se. I'm not like a super new age type of person, but I have been looking a lot at tarot decks recently and I was just like, I've never seen that one before. So I'll have to yeah. do some digging. It wasn't right or wait or anything. It was so creepy. Mm-hmm. You yeah. should we, we should post that after this episode if you want. I mean, just to see mm-hmm. if listeners have ever seen that. Maybe they really did find that in his possessions or something and then whatever. Yeah, I'll I'll try to figure out what was going on and for sure we'll post it because it was very spooky. Hell yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> speaking of spooky stuff that they found in, in his possessions that the informant said he had, uh, there was also that pair of binoculars that was, according to you know various sources, either found uh, somewhere on the property by the mother and the caretaker uh, who also worked for the catalyst uh, or uh, just an average guy juggling jobs in this economy. Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but uh, he also in the backpack or on the property was a pair of expensive binoculars um, that at trial, um, two of the Oda daughters were at boarding school. Um, and unfortunately, one of them actually went on to commit suicide um, after the trial, like years later, which is like terrible um, mm-hmm. and a little suspicious, suspicious in a way. I mean, not to like discount that a person would do something like that after a family tragedy, but given everything else and, you know, it's worth noting, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, at trial uh, or during the investigative process she testified that the binoculars uh, belonged to her family and then D.A. Peter Chang said that they didn't belong to her family that was an error uh, and then at trial again she said that they belonged to their family what, why would he even like I, <laughs> that's the thing that like the D.A. seems almost like I okay I'm like sort of workshopping a theory that's sort of like corollary to like Michael Aquino dressing as a vampire to like <laughs> throw people <laughs> off. Like, I kind of wonder if, like, uh, maybe uh, maybe this sounds like a galaxy brain thing, but like when a DA gets like an incredibly shitty case that they have to do like this, like I wonder if they do a bad job just to make it like you know what I'm saying? Like it's like they didn't even try. So it's like, are they doing it? as a bad case so that you're like surely they would never do such a bad job or is it sheer just incompetence on a basic level like i don't know (sighs) that's so i think that's super astute because in many ways this was a prototypical case for both the tough on crime and serial killer wave that would you know kind of take over the nation and popular Mm -hmm. narratives about america in the 70s um like it was so it was such a, a, a watershed moment, especially for Santa Cruz, which was becoming a, a college town, but it still had a lot of really old uh, conservative 
people and like gun ownership like spiked by like 80 percent in the county um and my thought maybe is like not only were they they workshopping this kind of strategy um or they could have been workshopping this kind of strategy but also seeing at, at what point would people wonder about this kind of thing right it's, it's almost so blatant that you know peter chang himself says oh yeah this was i i promise you i could have happened like this that it, maybe it was almost pushing the boundary of what could secure a conviction in something like this because like, how far the, would you need to go sorry <laughs> no no you're fine the manson murders were in 69 and then this was in 70 so like everyone would be thinking manson murder cult like mm -hmm. some sort of hippie murder cult why would they run with the, just one guy i guess because they can't catch a murder like probably because they had one guy i don't know like i don't know and what's weird to me is that um if i can i talk about the catalyst club for a little bit mm -hmm. um so like we talked about earlier dr david marlowe working on this case um and he was from ucsc um he had a lot of very spooky things in his background. Um, Donald Lundy, who did Patty Hearst, the other mm -hmm. two Santa Cruz serial killers, uh, the Mount Tam killer, uh, all these, these crazy things. Um, he was also on the case, so there's some very weird academic connections. Uh, and he was in the counterintelligence corps before this trial, which I thought was kind of fun. <laughs> Not fun, but terrible and spooky. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you have all these weird academic connections. And then D.I. Peter Chang. Uh, also worked on the case. Um, now, besides his personal friendship with both the public defender that worked on Fraser's case, Jim Jackson, who uh, uh, there's some indication he like purposely flubbed his own witnesses. Like Peter Chang was like, your witnesses are doing a terrible job today, Jim. And he was like, yeah, they suck. They're so stupid. They're idiots. Um, <laughs> when concerning the witness that saw the three people. <laughs> yeah, no. It was like, yeah. Like, Okay, that's the thing. And like I'm saying for the listeners, Pastiche Sayup found proof that what was it? The prosecutor, the defense attorney, and or no, yeah, the DA. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh who like which three people all knew each other? Sorry. No, you're uh totally thank you for pointing that out because it is a prelude to what I was about to the crazy shit that was about I was about to say. Um <laughs> and, and David Marlowe's obituary, um, the public defender, Jim Jackson, uh, calls him like an upstanding man. And Peter Chang says he was the best expert witness he ever worked with and that he was a friend in his personal as well as professional life. <laughs> and uh, luckily this came in super handy because when public defender Jim Jackson uh, accidentally shot his neighbor in a drinking rage some 10 years after the murder occurred, Peter Chang and David Marlowe served as character witnesses for his defense. <laughs> and I think I saw at the... Uh trial what what did fraser do he like shaved half of his face or something oh yeah i was gonna say this when you were talking about akino uh, dressing as a vampire um he, he shaved his eyebrows and half of his head i think that was after though they moved the trial to redwood city mm. which happened uh midway through 1970 and they were like the santa cruz community hates the hippies so much excuse <laughs> me we have to move this trial to redwood city um yeah yeah, I mean, like, with all three of these serial killers, like, there was just downright anomalous, like, lawyer choices. Like, I know that, like, I think it was Kemper, like, his defense attorney basically told him, yeah, man, get on the stand, testify, tell him why you murdered, like, in incredibly gruesome detail. And obviously, oh like caused him to like be convicted and it's just like no, no lawyer you, would tell you to do that 
Jimmy, that's uh, that's Jim Jackson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you. I, I, that's the same guy. I actually didn't know that. I had no clue. Well, what well, well I don't. I don't know that. Um, for sure. Um, I no, was no, actually. Just, I just googled it. Sorry. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, oh and this <laughs> this lawyer, he's just like, go for it, man. Tell him about the murders. They'll probably. Oh, <laughs> it's just like. Yeah. No. And that's like the role of what that's what both i think jim jackson uh when he brought up the actual evidence such as the three witnesses that um lindley fraser didn't do it he was like my witness he said this to peter chang i don't have the article in front of me but if, if you look it up he, I, i'll post this on twitter he was like i hope that i would really rather let lindley on the stand because uh my witnesses are just fucking up so hard today they're so bad um <laughs> You know, it's crazy. And then the role of, of course, David Marlowe and Dr. Lundy is that they called him a paranoid schizophrenic. Um, and then later, David Marlowe went onto the stand to say that actually a year earlier, he hadn't said anything. But Fraser had confessed the murder to him in full exactly as it happened. So, uh, you know, there you and go. they were for witnesses for the defense. They, they suck <laughs> so bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, the, the, the informants that spoke on the stand, um, sorry, speaking of the informants, bringing it back to the catalyst, let me just say that mm. there's evidence that what the, again, the informants were the only character witnesses that said that Fraser was a crazy environmentalist nuts, nutcase, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the close friends that was interviewed on the 21st of October before he'd been named actually said uh, that he was super surprised that this had happened in the way that it had. Um, if I can quote for a second, he said, he noted Fraser was an excellent mechanic and a perfectionist. Um, the change in Fraser must have took place after he quit Fraser's job. All of a sudden, he seemed like just another wired up hippie. Um, let me see. He called Fraser very intelligent and temperamental, which, you know, makes you wonder about the, the behavioral proclivities of, of a guy that goes to juvenile hall and potentially plays and he said the informant had never noticed any animosity to materialism in Fraser. He said the two had talked several times about what they wanted from life. And the friend said he would like a new motorcycle, a nice car, and a fine home. In other words, he wanted to live like Dr. Ota. Fraser appeared to think that was a fine ambition and urged his friend to attempt to realize it. He also said that as a part of his new lifestyle, Fraser had adopted a strict code of live and let live, live and let live. He always said, if that's your bag, that's cool. That's why I can't understand about the Otas because that affluence was their bag. <laughs> yeah, that really sounds like a murderous environmentalist who, you know, like <laughs> a murderous environmentalist who was so obsessed with his environmentalist mission that after murdering five people and leaving them to float in the pool before, you know, driving two cars in front of a garage and then doing a massive arson, he decided to go downstairs and write, you know, a hundred word note on a on a typewriter. Um, and then again, uh, at trial, the, the jury asked to rehear some portions of the testimony, um, including the, the mom's testimony about the, the orange backpack. Um, this was the jury in Redwood City after the trial was, was moved halfway through. Um, and the jury asked for testimony given by two of Fraser's friends from Capitola, which is uh, like a city also in Santa Cruz County. Um, Santa Cruz County only has four cities, not that big, um, but Capitola is nearby. So the jury asked for testimony given by two of Fraser's friends from Capitola, Shirley Jean Burns and Michael J. Wark. Miss Burns denied she had told a sheriff's investigator that Fraser said before the Otis Langs he was going to burn down a redneck house on a nearby hill. Wark said he had been under duress when he told the grand jury that Fraser had made a similar statement. Wark testified 
At the trial, Fraser told him he had stolen six guns, but said he had only ever seen one of them, a 38. Hmm. So the people that really knew him that didn't get money or work at the Catalyst for their testimony never said anything about materialist ambitions. And they even said that they were under duress when they uh, were, were on the stand talking about his desire to kill the Ota family. Very interesting. Yeah. So again, so these, these informants, uh, let me just try to, I'm sorry. I'm just like, I'm ranting about this because the John Lindley Fraser Innocence Project must never rest, I guess. There's just so much. <laughs> um, but the Catalyst Club. Uh, so again, we have this personal personal friendship that we, we have proof was between the, the supposedly terrible defender, Jim Jackson, Dr. David Marlowe, who worked with all three of them and, you know, gained more, no more clinical insight than Redwoods make you crazy. Um, and DA Peter Chang. So you think surely this is the most intense connection that ever happened in this trial between UCSC, the DA's <laughs> office, surely. the Mary Pranksters. <laughs> surely, right? There's no way that the Mary Pranksters group, UCSC, the DA, and the informants, you know, all, all have one central thing connecting them, do they? Oh, no. Oh, wait. Um, do, they? do they yeah so uh in 1966 uh the place where the private investigator who also got some of the reward money um bill tubs he supposedly uh met the employees slash informants and out of the kindness of their heart they told them about their schizophrenic friend um it was actually started concurrent with the university um and it was it was started by not just like faculty from the university but um the underling the direct underling um one of three of chancellor uh dean McHenry, um and that was assistant to the ucsc chancellor uh of brian stuckey uh he was president of the board of directors of the catalyst club in santa cruz um and then if i may quote uh other directors are city councilman norm lesson former santa cruz mayor and manager of the ak sauce tannery sam bloom of the cabrillo college staff assistant district attorney phil harry Leonard Kunin and Stanley Stevens of UCSC staff, Anne Reed, a legal secretary, Dr. Marvin Namman, Santa Cruz physician, Ian McPhail, a Santa Cruz attorney, and Hip Pocket Bookstore, which uh, was frequented by Neil Cassidy and Allen Ginsberg, uh, Hip Pocket Bookstore owners, Mr. and Mrs. D. Ludovico. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the place where the informants for this trial were found were employed by a club that was started by the Santa Cruz DA's office, uh, UCSC and Friends of the Mary Pranksters. Oh yeah, that's the good shit. <laughs> this is, uh, it, it gets like kind of nuts. Um, the place that the Catalyst was actually located, um, it's not located there anymore. My, my Santa Cruz besties, you know, might know it now as like a pretty fun music venue, but uh, originally it was just a coffee shop and it was in the St. George Hotel. Um, the St. George Hotel was one of the main meeting places for many of the, the older facets of Santa Cruz money before the university, um, like George H. Cardiff, um, who was deeply connected to the Canfield family, which owns the boardwalk, and also ended up meeting countless dignitaries when he sold the, the land for UCSC to the Board of Regents. Um, the St. George Hotel was a really like old money like type institution in Santa Cruz. Um, and when the Catalyst opened there, it was directly connected in the St. George Hotel by a hallway to Hip Pocket Bookstore. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so uh, that was 
a favorite of uh, Neil Cassidy. Uh, let me let me quote uh, Lee Quadstrom worked at Hip Pocket Bookstore. Um, they were connected together. A person walked from one to the other without leaving the building. Uh, and the the people who ran the first acid test, Ken Babs, were, were friends of Ken Kesey. Uh, and I think there was also a man, I forget his name, like Peter Lama or something. Um, he also ran, ran Hip Pocket Bookstore and had been involved in the orchestration of the first acid test. Um, and it was basically like a, a Mary Pranksters offshoot. Um, and they were connected by a door to the place where the John Lindley Fraser informants were found and UCSC and the DA uh, started a club. So um, basically there is a like extremely close connection between a, some of the most famous literature in America, the serial killers, <laughs> old money of Santa Cruz and all of these psychologists and yeah. the merry pranksters. Literally. Um, actually, let me, let me say this week, let me, I, I'm quoting again from, it's like a website. Uh, I think it's <clears throat> Jerry Garcia's like dead places or something. Uh, this week in Santa Cruz, th- this was recently, a concert reading and site dedication will commemorate the 50th anniversary of Ken Kesey and the Mary Pranksters' first LSD field acid test held in the neighborhood of SoCal on November 27th, 1965. More than a half dozen pranksters, plus the hammer Neil Cassidy once juggled, recently found in storage, will be in attendance for a reading at Bookshop Santa Cruz, which is a, a descendant of Pit Pocket. On Thursday, and a concert for Don Quixote's International Music Hall on Friday, uh, in addition to a marker near the now-demolished house once rented by Mary Prankster Ken Babs, County Supervisor John Leopold has announced plans to turn an adjacent bus shelter into a miniature museum, an unlikely but fitting symbol for the group that still tripped their way cross country on a still legal uh, LSD trip in a garishly painted International Harvester school bus named Further. Um, yeah, so even today, like John Leopold is a pretty old Santa Cruz family. Um, the, the, the Coonerty family who owns Bookshop Santa Cruz is uh, like a third generation um, investment real estate family in Santa Cruz. Um, they're still connected to this kind of like Mary Pranksters uh, group. What yeah. was what was that about Don Quixote? Um, we'll be in attendance for a reading at Bookshop Santa Cruz on Thursday and a concert at Don Quixote's International Music Hall on Friday. What's that? <laughs> let, me, let me look. I don't know what that is. That's near me. I will be like, like it. It doesn't like this sounds insane, but like the tarot cards, which may or may not be related, do look like some like depictions of Don Quixote like I know that that's not really proof of anything but like it does make me think of that oh that's weird um because um sorry this is like this is a break but um uh yeah the, the, the Don Quixote International Music Hall I've never heard of this in my fucking life it must be like an old people thing um it, it's in felton california which is where um the, the car that and the three footprints were, were actually found after the, the murders so. interesting and by the way yeah. i just looked up the tarot cards again and whether or not it's true the article says that these four tarot cards were were let's see here um no it just says whose names okay so maybe these aren't even related okay Anyway. That's what I thought, because they're so weird, but like, you know, you have to be like a little. Yeah. 